Welcome to episode 11 of Something Inventive, a nice cup of tea in the archers. Al and I discuss six questions you should ask your web developer before you start a project. It's funny though, I was talking to a friend of mine, Steve, you know Steve. Yes. I went name drop you in case you don't want anyone to know that you listen to this, Steve. He was saying that he really likes it, but he wants it to be only 18 minutes long. And he says the 18, titles, 18 minutes. Yeah. Right. And he okay. says the titles confuse him. Um, and I said, mm. yeah, it, both of those things I like. I like the fact that the title's a bit weird. And I like the fact it's not 18 minutes long. Well, there we are then. So <laughs> slam the door in his face there to all his ideas. <laughs> no, I, I, but I, I did say I agree for maximum visibility and maximum listeners then yes you probably want to keep it sub 20 minutes 18 minutes is what ted talks are it seems to be the length of time that people can focus on mm. um i think that's why they've made it that length and um having clear uh unambiguous titles help with search optimization and help be found because you can get new listeners mm, true. and so i totally agree but i don't think that's for this podcast I think mm. a short, sharp podcast on what is SEO, what is WordPress, what is Twitter, uh, how to how to do advertising on Twitter. You know, very short, sharp little things I, th- I think could work in that format. Little talks or mini talks almost. Not this sort of rambly, talky podcast. <laughs> Me personally, the reason I like doing this podcast is because it is because it's long. It's because we get to chat. And it's, it doesn't feel rushed, it's not over-edited, and we can have guests in, and we can just have a nice conversation. And they're the podcasts I really like. I like listening to them, and that, frankly, the longer the better. That's good to do some long journeys in the car. Yeah, I know. But it, if you can imagine, it's like having friends, I'll rephrase that, it's like having friends with you whenever you want, rather than just having friends. <laughs> But you can imagine it's like having friends just chatting away in the background and you feel part of the conversation, even if you're not engaging with them. You feel part of that conversation. You're nodding or disagreeing with them. And I, that's what I like about it. And, and so, you know, if it's not two hours, I'm not happy. And yes, I do listen to podcasts that are two hours or over. <laughs> Good grief. I know you can't no, imagine. No Mind you, if you, if, you get, uh, if you listen to the Archer's Omnibus, that's about an hour and a half. So you're, <laughs> you're reaching that, that level already. Uh, we usually have a lot of different types of topics and having to sort of pick through and pair them down. I think Al's got a good one that we can use as a kickoff point to, to start talking about. Would you like to introduce that topic for us? Yeah, so it's, um, it's as you say, Ben, it almost sounds like a blog post, but um, it's really kind of a list of six things that your web designer or web development company would would really appreciate you having like very early on in the project maybe even kind of before the project kicks off <laughs> so i guess it's just from our experience or my experience uh, of things we always ask for and, and sometimes things that take a little time to get so it's just uh things you can prepare before your web uh project really s- starts gaining momentum because it sometimes they can slow it down but if, uh, you know even when a web project might last a couple of months sometimes some of these things can be a bit of a blocker so yeah it's just to kind of yeah um Get on really good terms with your web development company too. They'll be really impressed and they'll really enjoy working with you because they'll see you're really prepared, so they'll like it. So uh, yeah, here we go. Probably, so probably probably makes for a better a better outcome. So having this uh, being prepared, I think you're going to have something that's going to be more useful to you ultimately, as well as making that relationship easier, as you say. Definitely, yeah, yeah. So um, here they are. They're in kind of no particular order. 
Um, so the first one, and it's the one that I, I always write down first when we're um, doing a new web project, is I always ask for a good quality copy of the logo. Um, now, <laughs> it's like my first thing I write down, even before I've done anything else, because it you just can't often get that very easily. Um, or the uh, the client might say, well, you know, you can take it from the current site. Um, mm-hmm. it, it may be it may be too small and you may have grander ideas for the logo. It needs to be large or um, used somewhere else um, or they've put it on a certain color background or incorporated mm. it with other graphics. And all these things just take time and are fiddly to kind of tease out the logo from the background <laughs> or something like that. Um, or they're just in a back, you know, not a very good format or not very good quality even. And so you don't really want to be using that for doing mock-ups and um, so forth to show them. It's nice to have their, their brand logo nice and crisp and also just resizable so you can you can just play around with it maybe you need it large or maybe a watermark in the background all of these things as soon as you get a good copy of the logo it just widens the horizon as to what you might want to do with it um what sort of what 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 size would you recommend what formats well i've got formats that are not good (laughs) so um we had recently i think whether the logo is a bitmap so it's like a dot bmp file if you have a logo that's a .bmp file or a .gif file, then, okay, they're bad. Don't use those or give them to anybody. They're not going to be good enough quality. The way GIFs work is they're limited in colour spectrum. So they only have yes. a maximum of 256 colours. That's true. So actually sometimes you could represent a logo in that, but often it's not good and it may have lots of dots in it. If you were orange and you had the old orange logo, then possibly yes, because it's just yeah. one colour. So that would be yeah. okay. But again, they're not... Uh, resizable um, and they're just yeah they're not good so mm. what about BMP though I mean uh, BMPs aren't particularly efficient way to store images but they should store images with uh, enough colors yeah but as soon as I see a BMP logo I think oh it's done it's been done it's been done in paint or something like that (laughs) (laughs) that's what I think I just immediately have this connection of oh no so um yeah that's maybe a personal thing and again this list is again a personal list it's not a definitive list it's kind of my thing I suppose um so the ideal formats, I mean, the holy grail of formats for logos is like an EPS or a, or a native Illustrator file. Mm. If your logo is a sort of vector style of logo, if not, then a, a layered PSD file or a very high quality TIFF file will be great. As soon as you start going into TIFF files or JPEG files, you can't have transparency in those formats. So if you want to do something with a logo where it's whited out on a, on a picture or something like that, I have to then you know, trim around it and cut it out, and it's never quite right. It's just always slightly, you know. It, it takes it just takes a long time, and it, it's a pain. So if you're able to supply, you know, like a PSD file which with, has transparency in it, I would then export that as a PNG file for use on the web or on mockups and so forth, which maintains its transparency as it was intended, rather than trying to reverse engineer cutting around Philly logo. Done it so many times just for mockups. It just it's it. No, it's not good. <laughs> now you so, fired um, a, yeah. you fired a lot of words out then. Um, okay, so sorry. Yeah. Let's just no, let's just run through them and make sure everyone's mm. aware of what they are. So EPS um, okay. and Illustrator file. So right. so basically, Illustrator is um, made by uh, Adobe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's basically a software package that allows people to create illustrations, but it's all based on storing the the dots and the lines between the dots and then the colors of um, the lines or the fills that you have in between lines. 
And because it stores just the dots and, and the representation of um, how those dots are connected together, you can actually make it as small or as big as you like and expand mm-hmm. it in or almost infinitely and it should still look great. You can expand it infinitely forever yeah. and ever. Yes. I mean, it might, it might still look a bit strange when you look close up, but um, ultimately you, you can... You can do that, you know, as long as you put the detail in, you can you can stretch it um, very large um, and it will still look good and crisp. And which is really nice when you're creating uh, graphics for print, then it'll always look as crisp as the printer can can print out. And certainly mm. for the web, if, if you need it to blow up a section because you need a curve from the logo as a background or that, some yeah. detail from it, you can do all mm. of that. And that's mm. so there's two things that Adobe Illustrator is a package that you can use for creating those vector um, artwork that comes in a .ai format is what you might yeah. see on a Mac or PC, yeah. and then mm-hmm. um, EPS is that encapsulated postscript? Is that what's that? That's yeah, that's for. correct. Yeah, so. yeah, um, yeah. And that—that's. I don't know how different that format is, but it's got. It's very similar. It's a similar nature, so it stores everything yeah. as points and the and the lines in between those points. It's very similar, but with an encapsulated postscript, you can just send it to print. You don't need anything else. With Illustrator, you could have placed files or uh, embedded fonts or non-embedded fonts that are kind of external things that it needs. With an EPS, as it says, it's encapsulated. It's kind of like, uh, in a sense of purposes, a bit like a PDF. It doesn't have any external stuff. Yeah, so it's basically a representation of what the printer would see. And it's almost printer language, you think, and the printers can can take that. It can just print it, and it knows there's nothing else to come in. But um, you can open an EPS file in Illustrator and work with it. Yeah, so um, that's that's a .eps file. Um, mm. So that's something a, a lot of people might ask you for printers, graphic designers. That's what um, web developers they'll they'll be asking. Yeah, and this leads me on to my next point. Really, is like where do you get the logo from? I mean, I've dealt with a lot of companies where they're like, oh, um, I don't really know. These are the only ones I've got, and they've kind of got maybe small JPEGs or something they use for letterheads on in Word. Again, getting images out of Word is really tricky and never very good quality either. So. It's always better to start with the source logo that was made. If unless you made it yourself, you're likely to have a designer who made it. You may not have all the files they sent to you. If you can get them, again, it's this is why it's worth doing this beforehand. Try and find them. It may take weeks to track down your original designer or track down the original email or CD or USB stick. They might just be busy. They've got to go and look through their archive stop hard drives to to find your your logo so exactly however the other the other thing i suggest to people to do is to contact the printers who they regularly do work mm. with because they're likely if they're decent uh, printers to have store your assets somewhere so they'll have these high quality logos um somewhere because it, then it, it saves them having to ask you for every time <laughs> so if you regularly have letterheads done or or um brochures your brochure designer will probably have a high quality version so it's just getting the logos from somewhere if you don't have them yourself so again these are just things that take can take time so yeah. it's good to start on this early on and um, just a couple of other formats you mentioned there so jpeg mm. are, are okay if that's all they've got but ideally it's the larger the better because you've got mm-hmm. because it's uh, a bitmap format that uh, so that means all every single dot and its color is stored in there that really you want to start with the biggest possible picture particularly if you're cutting out the background it gives you a lot to work with and then you can shrink it down um, yeah whereas a png can actually store both formats can't it it can store yeah. both um, vector and and um, and, and pixel based yeah yeah bitmap yeah and yeah pngs are really really good and transparency too so that's yes that's, that's true fantastic. yeah they, yeah, which means uh, you can have a logo, say a circle, um, a red circle with a white 
white inside, uh, but all the outside is um, transparent. So if you put it over a picture or you put it over a color, it means whatever is underneath that logo will shine through. And that, that's something that we, we do quite a lot with the, these big, full, large images in the background. Mm. Might be nice to have the logo over the top. Indeed. So that's, um, that's number one. <laughs> and then moving on to number two, again, in no particular order, it's, uh, it's photos. It's photos or other assets that are, I guess, applicable to your company or to the website you're making. But I guess for us, it's usually photos just of your product, people using your product or service, pictures that you've had taken of you. They don't have to be professional ones even, just anything really. Um, just collating them together, that takes time and shouldn't be underestimated. You know, those people who said, oh, you know, I took some photos at this workshop that you did and you then maybe, you know, they didn't send them to you. Track them down, get them, see if they're any good. I think people generally would be quite happy to have their photos used on your site. It's a nice endorsement and I think people feel good about helping people. So it's just getting a wide range of images. If you've got professional images done of your products or services, all the better. Again, the highest quality versions you can get all the better. Mm. We'll resize them. You can always shrink them down to using the web, but you can never enlarge them and retain quality. So it's just start with the highest quality you can get, really. Um, just so, a couple of, I don't know if you've yeah. mentioned this, but mm. on photos, do you have any examples of something you might say to people to get the best possible photographs, to give them examples of what should be in those photographs? Ah, uh, okay. I think it depends a little bit on their business. If mm. they are sort of a people business, like a, providing a service, I like just real life pictures. Some studio pictures are important for that quality and clarity. But I, personally, and again, this is a personal thing, I kind of like real life pictures that just depict the interaction that they're doing with people. Maybe they, they, they're, they're a speaker, so they've got some photographs of them you know, delivering workshops and so forth. If it's for a product, you've got maybe people using the product in real life, yeah, interspersed with high quality product images. You know, if you've made like, I don't know, a new, something like a Fitbit or something, something you wear on your, you know, some wearable technology or something, you need high quality pictures of it too. A range, really. People sell products, and I think people like to see other people using the products in photo. Yeah. Particularly people like us. By that, I mean the customer. You want to depict your typical customer in the pictures so they can see themselves in there. They can see, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm that sort of person. I, I want to have fun like that person mm. in the picture with this new Fitbit product and go to all these parties and you know, have a fire on the beach and, and stuff like that. Um, exactly. You know, lifestyle. You're, you're, yeah, exactly. You're giving good lifestyle. Sorry, if you look at the big bands, you know, that's what they do. You know, they sell you a, a lifestyle. Yes. This unattainable 20 something lifestyle, but it's there. Yeah, like, per, per, like perfume adverts are the, uh, uh, you know, or aftershave like adverts, the classic one. You know, you can't easily portray a smell through advertising. So they sell you the lifestyle of what that smell is going to give you. So it's just, you know, I guess it's the marketing collating all these images or, or videos even if you've got videos yeah. even better i don't think we've ever been to a client and they've said i've got this great product video i mean can you, if you remember a time that's happened we've always sort of said to them maybe you should do a video yeah i'm pushing people forward on that um i, I don't know if you're going to mention about naming of files i am is that, yes is that on the list okay I'll yes it. <laughs> so of course you might have hundreds and hundreds of images at this point with any luck um so uh, and they're generally in my experience, called DSC23001.jpg, <laughs> which is okay for like quick referencing of them. But when they kind of make their way onto the site, before that really happens, you want to rename them to be what they are. You want to have your company name or product name in that 
image if possible and what is happening in that image not over the top but just a nice succinct summary of what that image is two reasons for that really particularly for you doing, using wordpress when you bring it into wordpress it will take the file name of the image and give that as the title for the image in wordpress mm. that enables you to search for it a bit more easily and you can then use that to pump out onto the front end of the site to use it as the title tag or the alt tag which is really useful arguably the alt tag should be more descriptive about what is happening in the photo or what the photograph is of so you should expand that out really however it is better than nothing yeah a way i think of that when telling a client about it is to um, write down how you describe that image to someone over the phone so if you're trying to give as much detail as possible without having something which is 200 words long, and it may be up to 10 words, perhaps that's quite long, but 10 words should be uh, a good amount. And the reason for that is quite useful from a search engine point of view, that if you have good, accurate descriptions in your images, uh, Google may well give you a boost in search rankings because of that. But also your images are more likely to be found uh, when people do a Google image search so mm. that can lead more traffic to your website from Google Images, mm. so that can be useful too. And it's just easier yeah. for us to use. And it's easier for you when you're picking through them to identify what's what. Yeah, absolutely. I can think back to many times we've had a, just a massive amount of DSC, you know, D0003. It's very hard to, to yeah, remember which one's which and just to work with them. It's hard. So, yeah, it just helps everyone. It saves time and time is money. So it, it just all helps. Um Okay. Uh, and I, I guess, where would you put them? Well, you could give them uh, on like a USB stick or something, but we tend to favor putting them somewhere centrally, like on Dropbox, where it's you know more collaborative. Um, okay. So that's images. Now, what have I got here? Um, the next one I've got here is a, a well-thought-out brief. Now, this, and less and less these days, we kind of get written briefs kind of in the old, I say the old days, it was, I guess, a bit more common. In the old have, days. In the old days. <laughs> it wasn't even that. Back in my there. day, when we got it to the website brief. Sorry, yeah. um, people from no. Yorkshire. I didn't, um, I didn't mean to offend you. <laughs> uh, it would be, I guess, the thing to do would be to sit down and write a brief about you know what you want the designer to do. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ben. I think it's a bit more, a bit more the other way around these days. It's a bit more of a conversation. Mm. And then, I mean, certainly for us, we tend to then write down what we're going to do for them yeah. based on the conversation rather than a kind of a bit of a stale document that kind of says we want to do this and this and this. but doesn't have that input from the very people who might be having the ideas, you know, able to provide a bit more um, scope about what could be done. I'd agree because often mm. the client, their specialism is their um, their work, whatever their business is and not designing websites, developing websites. So often when they are, someone in the business is tasked or the business owner is tasked with uh, putting a website together, they'll do a lot of research, they'll go and have a look at what they think looks nice and um, what they think they want on there. Not necessarily with the eye of what's possible or mm. um, what is suitable for their customers. Not not all clients, some, some are very savvy and know exactly what they want. A lot of them we find that actually if they come to us with an objective, what do you want to achieve by doing this website? Do you, do you just want to update the look? So really you, your, your look is old and you just want to bring it up to date with uh, how your company feels and looks from the outside now? Or do you want to actually want to try and achieve something different? You want to get more sales? You want to expand into a different area or different sector of business? There's lots of different reasons and that's what we want to know. 
Why are they doing this? Because then we can help. If you were to make a document, it doesn't even need to be a brief. It just needs almost like a bullet point list, really. It doesn't need to be too in-depth at that point. Because at that stage, it's far too descriptive. You need to have more of a dialogue and a conversation. But it really just focus on what it needs to do rather than, than how it how it looks. Mm. Yes, um, absolutely. That's, that's the bottom line. And what, what the problems are rather than what you think the solutions are. I'm harking back a little bit to a podcast a few months ago. I was talking about like root cause analysis of things, but it really is what are the issues, not this is what we're going to do to fix the issues because that doesn't help anyone. Um, they may have an idea. I mean, they may hmm. they may come with a fully formed idea of what uh, of the right way of doing it. But I think it's it's better that um, the client goes into these discussions with an idea of what they want to achieve. The reason the brief may have come about is when you're going out to tender. And so that's, that's something we don't tend to do. We, mm. we don't um, pitch for tenders. So often um, organizations or companies will put out a document saying, these are the requirements of what we want. This is how we want you to deliver it. And we want you to answer these questions. And then they'll put that out. And then people will come back with answers to those questions, hopefully in the right order and to meet the cost budgets that they put in place. And I totally understand the reason for doing that because it can make the job of someone who is sifting through all these pitches and applications a bit easier because they can rank them against marking systems they've got. They can make sure that each one has ticked off a certain set of boxes they've got for their brief. But I find it takes away the humanity of what you're trying to do and it takes away the purpose of what you're trying to do, which is to find the right people to work with who understand your vision and can achieve it. Whereas if it's boiled down to a pitch document, I think most companies could come back with a fulfilling proposal that meets all of your requirements that may even be the best price. And that's another thing we often see in a, in a proposal that say, that say they'll always go to the lowest price that meets all our requirements. And that just seems wrong to me. I mean, yeah, you don't mm. want to be ripped off. You don't want to be spending no, more than you need to, but you want the right company. Mm. For us, because we don't tend to go in for those pitches, we build up a relationship with the customer first. And when we enter into a project, we build on that relationship by discussing their needs and what they want to achieve. And then we'll, we'll help them achieve that by, as you said, almost writing that brief back to them, writing the mm. plan back to them. I mean, from my point of view, it's just much more engaging and interesting to work on a project where you're trying to come up with solutions to their problems. Yeah. You feel much more involved with it rather than having a list of this needs to do this, you know, like an almost like a functional specification document, you know, this needs to do that. You know, it's a bit stale. There's no, you know, where's my input in there? You know, I'd much rather just have a list of problems and work out the solutions to those problems mm -hmm. because you're going to put more into it because it's like your thing and you're going to want to make it work. So, um, yeah, that's why, that, again, that's a personal thing. Other people may, may have different views on it. But um, Before you move and, on now, oh, maybe, yeah. maybe I could, uh, what number are you on at the moment? Getting to the end of number three. Oh, excellent. Finish off number three and then we'll go into okay. an ad read. Okay, fine. Um, and the other thing, uh, just an overview i guess of what you're trying to do is is to say it's okay to split things into phases this idea of we're doing the website so we need to do every possible thing we might need on the website well okay that might be the right thing to do but it's okay to have phased things and, and we sort of have it as like a list of needs and then a kind of list of wants yeah. if we can do the wants early on that's brilliant but some things you know you just it's okay to to put them in later there's no problem with that if your customers aren't aware that you're doing it they're not going to look at the site and think something's missing uh, as you go over, as you go through. Just add it slowly rather than give them everything all at once that may not be, you know, 
have enough time to be thoroughly tested or worked out. Just drip feed, you know, website is never finished. It's always going to be evolving. So just build that into kind of the plan, I guess, is what I what I would suggest. Yeah, and that, that's how we run a lot of our projects now. In fact, almost all of them is through uh, by evolving them. So we have a, a general idea of how long it might take. Obviously, there is a cost attached to that. And we never move on the cost, even if it takes us a bit, little bit longer. But we evolve the site from, from every single conversation that we have, which is usually every two weeks. The site is evolving and developing until we go live. And then even after that point, we evolve and develop it, albeit at a slower pace, but it does continue evolving. Um, and really, the, the website is never finished. Mm. Okay. Uh, you can go to ad break now. Over to me. Great. Um, so I'm going to switch up, switch gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about um, the book that we published uh, a little while ago. Uh, it's a great book. It's called Be Sociable, and um, it really uh, gives you lots of easy-to-follow social media tips and strategy and advice that can help get you noticed by the right people and for the right reasons. It is um, uh, an Apple-only exclusive at the moment, um, so it's available on iPhone, iPad, and Mac for £4.99, and you can go and buy that in the iBook store. So we wrote the book uh, because there are thousands of websites, videos, books with tips, how-tos, discussion, argument uh, on social media, on the web. It's all free. It's all available. But we found it was difficult to access. So Helen Caldercutt and I, uh, we worked uh, together a couple of years back on um, social media workshops. We put together this book to uh, bring together the most useful and important ones that we felt that most people needed to know. We wanted it to be concise, easy to read and interesting. So we've got some tips and ideas like uh, getting a recognisable profile name, talking to Twitter as a person or stalking your customers on LinkedIn. It's all very interesting stuff. There's about 57, 58 tips on there. So I think it's good value per tip. And if you want to find it, just go on to Google and search for Be Sociable Ben and you'll find our book on there. Click on that and get yourself a copy for $4.99. It's also on our website, and that'll give you a bit more information, and you can click through and get it there. If you want a PDF copy, if you buy the book on iBookstore uh, and let me know, I'll send you a PDF copy completely free as well. So, Al, tip number four. Okay. So I've loosely called this competitor analysis, but it's, it is that, but it's also... And uh, this is a bit more of the visual look, maybe, of the site, aspects of other sites that you like, that you can see working for your own site. They don't even have to be in the same industry as you at all. It could be anything. It's Again, it just helps um, just to give pointers towards what can be done, what other sites that you like. Conversely, things you don't like on other sites. So it's, it's also really useful uh, to have a list of competitors. Um, it doesn't have to be an exhaustive list. But it does give some pointers towards the style of sites that other people in your industry are using. Not so that you can then copy that. I think it's important not to make a site that's that's very similar. And that could happen where you might inadvertently look like you've copied another site, but you haven't at all. So it just helps give you you your identity amongst your competitors. And, and again, your sort of list can include things that work and don't work on their sites, as well as your own site. There's likely to be things that work really well on your own site at the moment that you want to keep or grow and and just again things that don't work so well on your site that's really my points on competitor analysis i don't know ben if you've got anything to add on that yeah i mean in some cases it can work quite well not to look at anyone else but i I would say that it's good to look at other companies and look at a lot of them but not take notes and say i want that necessarily 
it's more a good idea that we have a rounded idea of what the market is like for your website. How is your website going to sit in amongst these other competitors? Do you want to be more visible than them or is it okay that you're not able to rank as well online? But often having a look at competitors, it can just give you a flavour for where you sit. And so it'll enable us to come up with better ideas on top of what they've already got. So I think it is a good idea, but you don't necessarily need to say we want to be better than all of those guys. So we must have everything that they've got because that Mm. won't necessarily work. I think you've got to look at it. And almost um, like when you're writing copy or you want to basically, rather than plagiarizing someone, someone's piece of work, what you should do is you read their blog post or you read their book and then you go away and you think about how you would write that same topic, that same theme, and you'd basically rewrite your own thing. And I think it's the same with the website. You need to take mm. influence and you need to sort of immerse yourself in these competitors, but then, then totally ignore it when you're coming up for the design. Just take, <laughs> just take the bits yeah. that you need. That's true. I mean, if if you look at it as if you were making a product, let's say you're making a new speaker, you know, you would naturally look at other people's speakers to see what they're doing and think, how would I do this better? And I suppose that's the same with your own site. Um, it's just take that sort of overview. Yeah, um, what's working well for them and what can yeah. we take? I mean, as a, as a designer, I, I, I do sometimes, it's a bit, it's a bit tricky. It depends on the, the site, actually. Sometimes I will purposely not look at competitor sites if i've got a strong feeling for how it should look and work because mm. i don't want that influence even um you know <laughs> subconsciously to be taking ideas from other sites so i might just evolve the idea a little bit first and then go and look it's a, it's a weird thing but um that's really from the design designer side of it so it, you know from the client side just given the you know producer list anyway that's up to them <laughs> if you're emerging so if you're coming into an existing market it can be good to be totally different anyway and ignore everything else that anyone's doing because they're all doing the same thing. They're all competing in the same market. The only way you're going to be able to compete is by being different and you get noticed because you're different. And so sometimes actually you can pare back the design, do things in a different way, be radical, and that's going to help. Mm. So sometimes ignoring competitors can be a, a positive <laughs> advantage. My next one is... Um loosely called brand guidelines it's something i check for larger well even smes um or maybe have some kind of brand guidelines that maybe were designed at the same time as their logo just give some um indications about how that should be used um, usually on letterheads sometimes on digital things as well more often than not the website it's always exempt from that but it, you can certainly push the boundaries a little bit and certainly with responsive design things can't always sit exactly where you want them to on every device. You may need, sure, you may need a bit of white space around the logo. That's like the brand. That's fine. That can be built in. It's just useful to know from the design point of view at the beginning, just useful to know what parameters there are for logo usage. It should also list out um, corporate colors in a way that then can be exactly transferred onto the screen. So I'm not just sort of guessing at what the color should be from like a really bad (laughs) bitmap or GIF logo, for example. For print, Color references are usually, um, for spot colors, they're in Pantone references. The designer may have included um, CMYK or RGB references for those colors. If you've got any color reference, you can kind of convert it into others. So Mm. anything like that is fine. That is like a definitive color that companies blue is this. So it can be the same from the word go, which is really useful. Another part of uh, the brand guidelines might be a font typeface. So it might be the font used in the logo, like a JPEG or a, a TIFF logo, you may not have the font typeface um, 
well, in fact, the, the file won't have that embedded in it. So you have to work out what that is. Mm. Sometimes you have to do that by guesswork. I've done that quite a few times, trying to reverse engineer what that font was used because they there want to use that elsewhere. There are some sites that, aren't there? I've used a few of them, yeah. Some of them are very good, yeah. Yeah, I'll um, see if I can find one I'll post in the links where you can basically upload an image of the text you want to identify. Mm. You click on a few letters to make sure it's, it's identified yeah. the letters correctly and then it finds all the fonts yeah. it could be. And it, they, They're not bad. They work pretty well. I have used that on a few logos before, and yeah, they are very good. There's two approaches. One is that approach. The other one is it asks you questions. <laughs> so it's yeah, a, about the font. Like this. Interesting. Like that. It's like a kind of party game. Is it, does it have serifs? On, on, how does the P look? <laughs> you know, sort of thing. With fonts, fonts are interesting beasts because often they need licensing, so you need to pay for it. I mean, there are some fonts which we can use freely, so any font that is available for use in a browser that you tend to find on your computer by default when you have it. So you've got Arial, Times New Roman, um, is it Courier? Is that one of them? Yeah. Ge- um, there's a few default ones. They're not Geneva. the best. Geneva. They're not the best fonts, but they work and you can use them. There are other ones by Google. So basically Google have bought the licenses to use these fonts. They give that away freely to anyone who wants to use those. And they've got a lot of fonts you can use. Mm. Uh, again, they may list. not be quite the right font, but it might be that the font in the logo is, is the font and the logo, and that's fine. We just need to find a font that is similar to it, but it doesn't need to be exactly the same. Yeah. It depends on the brand guidelines, how important that is. And mm-hmm. it also depends on the cost, because you may well need to get that logo licensed correctly for the web. So there are some yeah. fonts which I don't believe you can use on the web, but not, they don't have Correct. a license. You can't, you're not allowed to use the, the font, even if you can technically get it on there, you're not allowed to. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there are places where you can rent fonts or buy the actual font for you. Rent fonts by the hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, Typekit. Is Typekit's one of them? Yeah. It might be a whole new podcast, actually, fonts, because there's quite a lot to them. But in a nutshell, yes, as you're saying, there are various um, different uh, roads to go down with font usage. There's a great site called Font Squirrel, which will allow you to upload a font file, and it will convert it into like web font which actually are several different formats because there's no specifically unified format across browsers. And there's a couple of different ones. Yes, as you say, some of some really uh, popular fonts are licensed in such a way that it won't let you do it. You're not allowed to use them commercially unless you pay for them. Mm. Um, there's a particular one that springs to mind, which we've used in a few projects called Gotham, which is a really nice, really nice font. I believe it was used for the Obama campaign. Yes. And since mm-hmm. then, it's been quite popular font in various different uses. Oh, really? <laughs> but that's a paid for one. So you literally have to pay for a certain amount of uh, like hits on it, really, per year. So it's like a yearly subscription. If you don't pay, then your font just your font goes back to Times New Roman or whatever you set it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. You can uh, so, have fallback fonts. So you can say, yeah. I want to specify this particular font. But if that font is not available or in this case, the licensing expires, then it will fall back to mm. something else. Yeah, that's a scary thing to have on your site, I think, if you do forget to pay for it, or you've got to continually pay for it. Yeah. Uh, it, it feels a little bit frustrating. And there's so many, not to take anything, anything away from font designers, because it isn't easy. And if you've got a really, a really great work. font, it's a lot of work. And if it's a really great font and it speaks in the voice that you want to speak in, then by all means, yeah, use it. And again, it will set you perhaps apart from your competitors if you're using a really nice font for your messages. But you might find something similar, on, like you say, on Google Fonts. There's always a kind of similar one that you could use. Like there's a, a Gil Sans similar one on Google. And there's a lot more. And there's some really nice handwriting fonts that I've been looking at lately on Google as well. So it's definitely my first port of call, to be honest. 
and then yeah. font squirrel after that if it doesn't work <laughs> um, but like i say i think it might be a whole new podcast about fonts because there's a lot of different ways to do it um but just on the sort of brand guidelines it's just really useful to know if there are certain fonts that are used in your company gotham might be one of them then you know you have to pay you can have to pay for it if you want it online mm. or use something just a bit similar another uh, sort of thing that's bundled under that is it's just really useful to have a, a examples of other printed material that you might have brochures yeah, definitely uh, you know flyers or or um uh labels what it depends on your business of course um stationery uh, business cards things like that because you kind of want it to you want your website to sort of sit in and and be harmonious with those things but you you want to avoid copying it because it's much easier to design new letterheads than it is to design a whole new website and and, and i guess years and years ago i, I kind of made that error when i was working somewhere where we made the website exactly like the brochure so we had the brochure and I designed the website exactly like it. Of course, next year, whole new brochure designed. Whoa, the site's got to be remade. And very quickly think this is this is a silly thing to have done. <laughs> Wasn't a happy day for uh, Al when they when he received the brochure. But I kind of knew it changed. But at the time, it was quite exciting to kind of emulate the brochure. But mm-hmm. it's just having that that sort of standing back and saying, no, it's okay for them to be different as long as they're harmonious and they look like a sort of family together. That's okay. Yes. They don't have to be. They've the got same. to feel like part of the same family. That's the, yeah. that's the way I look at it. And um, I think there's diff- just different features. You know, print has some really useful features that we should make use of. The web has different ones. You've got the the way you can respond a site from a big desktop size all the way through to mobile. You can't do that in print. Or you know, there's lots of you've got to design for. For, for how people are using it and the device they're using on and, and, and what context they're using on. And, mm. you know, copying print isn't isn't the way of doing that. Can't, especially can't do that. No, it's so fluid these days. Um, it's more about the information um, uh, as long as there's a, you know, a flavour of, of um, your sort of brand going through everything. That For me, that's, that's enough. Um, so that leads me on to my last one, which is I've written down current hosting. So that's really... Uh, boils down to where your site's currently hosted, who's got control over your domain names, wh- wh- how does your email system uh, work. It's just these little technical things that are really useful to know quite early on, and you might not know. Maybe your previous developer or designer um, bought the domain name for you, mm-hmm. um, and they've got it's on their sort of package, so you can't get access to it to change it. Ultimately, what this comes down to is when your site goes live, we'll need to just change something on your domain settings in order to either point it to new hosting or to to move it to a different registrar. As again, this might be a whole new podcast issue because there's a lot of things here. But it's just getting as much information of control panel information for your domains and your hosting as possible. I think we had a case recently where that it, this exactly happened where the person who'd previously done the site had control of the domain name and because they weren't interested in doing the site, going forward that actually put a probably a 10-day delay on having the site launch even though we were sort of seeking the information throughout the whole project it just delayed things unfortunately mm-hmm. um so it's just getting the information uh, up front it's also useful to know you know what platform it's currently being hosted on what other systems are going on on that website that may not just be the website there may be some other things going on there you may have yeah. some other little files that have been put up that do things you may like have a, a whole um, email footers 
Sometimes email, yeah, exactly where I'm going footer, with that. Yes, yeah, a, little, a little folder with the email footer logos in, so you change the website and suddenly your email footers don't work. So it's just these little things that can be useful. A couple um, of things I'd, I'd add to that. Mm, I don't know if yeah. you're going to mention them, but one is, uh, do you want the new web development company to host it? I mean, often yeah. that is the case that people would rather have everything move over to the new company, but not always. Yeah. Sometimes it stays, the hosting stays with the previous company, or maybe the hosting is a separate company altogether. And so that's important to ask, really, and um, determine whether you what you want to do. And the other mm. one I've forgotten, but it was really <laughs> good. <laughs> was it about expiry of hosting? Uh, no, you know, it, oh. it was it was about do you need to keep a copy of the previous website? Often oh, okay. we do. Yeah. Often we yeah. will take a copy anyway, whether the client says so or not, because Why, yeah. just in case. Why not? Why I mean, not? They're Why usually not? not that huge. Um, but. Often I think that's good, and some, sometimes it's nice to refer back to. We'll we'll take two copies. One which is an exact file and database copy, or however it's made. We take what we can, so we can recreate that. And the other is a static copy. So we use what's the tool? What's the tool? It's uh, we use Site Sucker. Site Sucker. Yeah, that's right. And so you you how enter, could you forget that name? It's it's brilliant. You enter the uh, I think it's free as well on Mac. You can enter the domain in, and it will uh, march through every single page and download a HTML copy which means you can run it offline. So after the website's gone offline, after all the databases have gone and died and the server's off, you can actually just run that from a USB stick or a hard drive and you can click through all the pages and you can see everything as it was at that time when you ran it, which mm. is really useful if you, if you say the client forgot to put some information on there or they needed to reference back or sometimes actually we're just looking... We're appraising the, the current website maybe two years on and we want to, it's nice to see where we came from and where we're going and where we've gone to. So it's just great to have that um, backed up just in case you need to go back to it. Absolutely. Um, and you were saying about hosting, it's also useful to know when your hosting expires and you're probably unlikely to know that unless you sort of look into these things before the web project. Um, I think we've got a, uh, one at the moment well, actually, the hosting kind of expires around the time we're looking to launch. Mm. Um, and so we just want to avoid that issue of running over, even by a week, um, because then the site's down, or they're going to have to pay for a whole year of hosting on this other platform and then move it over if, to us. I would err on the side of caution. And, you know, if you need to pay for that additional year of hosting, just so you're not rushing the live, do it. Because unless they're charging you a lot, it's worth doing. Because then you've got the peace of mind that it, that it is there in the background. And, and certainly the way you like to swap sites, it's better if you can go from one server to another because the transfer is often more seamless. That you can be, the website is on a previous server, it's now on our server, and we can just redirect all traffic from one to the other. It happens seamlessly. And, and, and if you ever need to go back because there's a problem, you, you've got the other one there. Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I would never rush going live unless unless there's an absolute critical need. But often there isn't. It's, it's just sometimes these arbitrary deadlines. So, yeah, definitely pay for that additional hosting if you need it. Mm. So it's really just writing down or getting the information of your domain name control panel for modifying that and your hosting. They may be in the same place. They may be in different places. They may be hosted or looked after by the same person or different people. Mm. We've had that as well uh, with a certain company. Um, where they were held in different, completely different people. And actually no one knew how to get control of the domain name. And it took weeks of emails all around this company to find out. So it's just, yeah, looking into that as soon as you can. It's quite important. At the beginning of a project is I always check the, the actual legal registrant of the domain, mm -hmm. particularly for smaller companies where maybe the previous developer, designer has registered it. 
and um, they've put their own name as a legal registrant. I saw one recently exactly like that. So although the, the address might be their own, the legal registrant of the domain was the previous web designer who's just added to their account and not bothered to create a new, like a, a, the right customer record for that domain name. So I always check these things because I, I think that's a nice thing to sort of say to people, you need to fix this because <laughs> uh, you, do, you do need to fix it and resolve it. Yeah, great. Actually, this um, I think that's gone really well. I quite like that list. And, and it's actually got me thinking that perhaps we could do a list of... Um, uh, considerations during a project build as well so we've got these pre-considerations considerations during a project build and then going live and because I, I think while the web developer should be leading and and basically helping the client move forward with this project I think a better educated client is going to help both is going to help the project work more smoothly so actually if we it might be quite nice to give an insight into how we work in those um, because I think clients will benefit from that mm. Yeah, absolutely. That was great, though. Really good. Thanks very much, Al, for that. Um, so where can you find us online? You can get Al on Twitter, at Inventive Al. You can find me, at Ben Kinnaird, on Twitter. And if you type my name in, Ben Kinnaird, you'd probably find me anywhere else. Um, the sponsor is Be Sociable. So that's our book written by Helen Caldercutt and me, full of uh, almost 60 tips on social media and strategy. Uh, do go and buy it. Um, it's, it's a really good book. We made it. Of course, we're going to say it's really good, but I think it is very good. It's well written. It's not too long. It's not too boring. Uh, and if you like the show, it's a way of supporting us here as well. Thanks very much, Al. I think that's been a really good one. And we'll see you next month. Okay. See you now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Dick and bum, 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 dick and